Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue three of our comics bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1990s Dick Tracy, along with 1993's Dennis the Menace. This is an interesting week, because this is the first time we've talked about a film based on a comic strip uh, on the bracket so far, and this week we have two. Which was nice. Let's just ease things in. It wasn't like a pleasant, friendly newspaper comic versus some like gritty sci-fi comic book. That would be a weird mashup that would be hard to talk about. Spoilers for next week. (laughs) (laughs) These are also both very long-lasting. Dick Tracy being, I think, the third oldest franchise on our bracket starting in 1931 and Dennis the Menace starting in 1951. And these are both very Americana. A lot of what we talk about is Americana to a greater or lesser extent. Much of Disney is Americana, but, you know, viewing other cultures through the Americana lens. But I think Dennis the Menace is probably the first time we've had, like, a harmonica be a a prominent part of the theme music. Dick Tracy was very influential for noir. There was a lot of feedback and forth. It defined a lot of the the look, the feel, the sort of hardball detective-ness. Mm-hmm. It didn't necessarily invent every trope, but it definitely used every trope. Why don't we go ahead and get into plot summaries? Sure. Dick Tracy. Alphonse Big Boy Caprice is attempting to consolidate power in the city, first by getting rid of competition at a poker game, and then by acquiring Club Ritz via aggressive negotiations. Police detective Dick Tracy can't seem to find hard evidence to nail Big Boy, and so he continues to seize power by bringing all organized crime in the city under him. After it attempts to bribe, seduce, and kill Tracy fail, the detective leads a seemingly unsuccessful raid on Club Ritz, which is actually a distraction so the police can bug Big Boy. The info the bug provides all but destroys Big Boy's criminal empire, until the device is discovered and Big Boy gives a false lead in an attempt to assassinate Tracy. However, the attempt is foiled by a third party, a no-faced stranger called The Blank, who has other plans for Tracy. After the initial rescue, The Blank drugs Tracy and frames him for the murder of the DA, who happened to be in Big Boy's pocket. As Tracy is being transferred from city to county lockup, The Blank kidnaps Tracy's girlfriend, Tess Trueheart, and frames Big Boy. The officers break protocol and release Tracy to save her, sending Tracy, Big Boy, and The Blank on a collision course that only one will walk away from. Fights and chase scenes ensue, and Tracy comes out ahead, but not before realizing the blank was just a mask. Breathless Mahoney, the femme fatale whose advances he'd rejected, was the one behind it. Breathless dies in Tracy's arms, and he's cleared of all charges. Soon after, Tracy is celebrating at his favorite diner with Tess, but gets a call about a crime in progress. As he's going out the door, he turns back and tosses Tess a ring box. Roll credits. Meanwhile, in the significantly less hard-boiled Dennis the Menace, it's summer. Dennis is a mischievous child whose antics are of special concern to his neighbors, the Wilsons, as they prepare for a garden party. This comes to a head when Dennis's parents are both out of town at the same time for work, and no one can babysit for them except the Wilsons. Initially, they quarrel, then they start to bond, Mrs. Wilson revealing her desire for a child that was never fulfilled. Unfortunately, Dennis messes up the big garden party when he tries to warn Mr. Wilson about a theft, and Mr. Wilson calls him a menace. Dennis runs away and winds up a hostage, although he's not really aware of it, by a drifter, Switchblade Sam. Once he starts to cotton on to Switchblade Sam's nefarious intents and that he was the one who stole from Mr. Wilson, he horribly brutalizes him with a train and drags him back to the neighborhood. Everyone who had been so sad to see him go embraces him as a hero, and Switchblade Sam is taken in by the police. Very different films, tonally. Yeah, although both of them have a lot of nothing in them. 
It's not that they don't have plots, it's just that the plots have a lot of wheels spinning while genre stuff happens. For Dick Tracy, it's hard-boiled noir-y, and for Dennis and Menace, it's wacky shenanigans. Yeah, neither of these films could be described as brisk. Well, that said, Dennis and Menace isn't necessarily brisk, but we watched it after we watched Dick Tracy, and dear god, that took forever. It was so bad, we would pause it like, is it almost over, and we were in Act 1. Well, with that glowing endorsement <laughs> right up front, let's go ahead and get into why we feel that way. This is grandfathered in by the comics, but they could have just not done this. There's a lot of bad guys are disfigured or fat or otherwise misshapen, whereas all the good guys are you know beautiful and platonic ideal of masculinity or femininity, and that's gross. It doesn't need to be unpacked. There's not like, well, it actually works here. It's just shitty. There was a way to strike a balance between having the characters look as they did in the comics, but not having them be so completely grotesque. A lot of the makeup, the faces are like potmarked and they add in extra wrinkles and things that they don't need. I mean, you kind of need wrinkles on prune face. I will grant you that. But big boy doesn't necessarily need them. Flat top doesn't really need all the potmarks going on on his face. Yeah. On a technical level, the makeup is good, but from a design perspective, I would say it falls very flat because of the issue with the association of disfigurement equals evil. Mm -hmm. So too are the gender politics, you know, maybe not that great overall. Yeah, we have a whopping three female characters in the film. We have Tess Trueheart, Dick Tracy's longtime girlfriend, who the film lets you know is exasperated that Tracy has not decided to settle down with her yet. We have Breathless Mahoney, who for most of the film is just a femme fatale trying to seduce Tracy and is causing a tension between Tracy and Tess. And then at the very end, you find out that she is one of the major antagonists of the film. Looking back, you can kind of see it makes sense why 88 Keys would be the Blank's right-hand man because of that close association that they had at Club Ritz. But there's not a whole lot of lead up to that reveal. And then our third female character is a police stenographer, played by Kathy Bates. She has like two lines. Yeah, I didn't realize that was her that she was in it. Oh, wait, Tess Trueheart does have a mom who, you know, is like, oh, you should marry that nice Dick Tracy, man. That's her whole role. Okay, yeah. four. Yeah. Two that really matter. And one is pure and chaste and wants to settle down, and one is wanton and sexual, whereas black and does violence. There's a very complex relationship there. I will admit, surprisingly, Madonna, who plays Breathless Mahoney, is one of the bright spots in this film. Her acting's fine. It's not the best, but half of her dialogue is just double entendres and she delivers them perfectly. There's this great bit. She was the mall to one of the former mob bosses who started wearing concrete overcoats and Dick Tracy comes to interrogate her after he's been found dead and she's wearing a nighty and not a lot else. And he's like, no grief for lips. I'm wearing black underwear. I want to have that kind of sass. Like it was so good. Although that costuming choice in that scene, you're pretty clearly able to see Monada's nipples in that outfit. I mean, this is rated R, right? PG. What? Wow. I. <laughs> There's also a bit where Madonna knocks at the door, Tracy thinks it is Tess Trueheart, and... What kind of ice cream did you get? Nice peach. Better eat it right away. It's starting to run a little. Wow. 
I think it's actually more sexual than the exposed female nipple. Honestly, I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, Madonna seems to be having a lot of fun. I get the vibe that she really believes in this character, this not very complex character. It doesn't help that Dick Tracy is very unlikable and is also 20 years older than both of his female romantic leads. We'll get into Warren Beatty in a little bit. Let's go over some of the other issues. We talk about how Tracy is very unlikable. There's a lot of this film that just feels like copaganda. Oh, yeah. And that does track with the comics, I believe, right? Yeah, it's pretty in line with the comics, although not every era of the comics. The the comics kind of evolved a a bit over time. But during the 60s, there's a run where the creator kind of used Dick Tracy as a mouthpiece to kind of comment on the problems with the criminal justice system. But not the problems that get talked about now, more so the police having too many restrictions and too much oversight and they can't get things done because of it. This film definitely is in that same vein and watching it from a modern perspective, it's kind of gross. (laughs) Yeah. Weirdly, I found Big Boy more compelling. I mean, he's the main antagonist, but Al Pacino is having a blast. All of his monologues are wonderful. There's this weird bit where he's kidnapping Tess Trueheart and just dragging her down some alleyways and tunnels and stuff. And he just keeps talking, villain monologuing through every cut as we cut to other bits of action. I feel like it must be 20 or 30 minutes of just Al Pacino just having a villain breakdown. And I want to watch all of that. It's like Al Pacino playing a parody of Scarface. It's wonderful. He's just hamming it up and it works out really well. Him and Madonna are probably some of the most fun characters in this film. They seem to know that they're in a cartoon. Yeah, I think everyone else is maybe playing the parts a little bit too seriously. There's also just a lot of wasted talent here. There's some really big name actors that they have. They have Dustin Hoffman as uh, Mumbles, one of the mobsters. And guess what his signature trait is? Guess what his thing is? Yeah, so really a waste. Talked about Kathy Bates earlier. Dick Van Dyke plays the corrupt district attorney and honestly doesn't even get that much screen time. Yeah, like why would you just casually kill off Dick Van Dyke? There's a lot of talent here that's just not being used and it's honestly frustrating to watch. And even some of the other side actors are doing a decent job. Like the the kid. I'm not sure if he was even in your summary, was he? No, he wasn't. So Dick Tracy has a sort of like homeless child ward. He's the Jimmy Olsen, the the Robin, who is in the plot and does things a bit. Doesn't really affect a lot, but he... At one point, he saves Dick Tracy from a water heater that's about to explode. Sure. That is about the extent of his plot relevance. He does have some sweet moments. Like, he doesn't have a name, so eventually he has to pick one, and so he goes with Dick Tracy Jr., and I was like, aww... That made the cold, sad lump of rock in my chest pulse a bit. The kid is portrayed by the same actor that played Peter Pan's kid in Hook, Jack, which actually came out just a year later. I don't mind the kid as a character. I think they spend too much time with him. We get a montage of the kid eating. I'm Mm -hmm. not even joking. I don't know why it's there. I guess it's supposed to show you, oh, this kid is so hungry and is a growing boy and needs to consume lots of food, but... I don't care. It's not plot relevant. Yeah, it doesn't inform 
any story that he like keeps eating when there's danger happening that gets him into trouble or that he i don't know eats the poisoned apple is left for dick tracy or whatever or during a chase scene he's been eating a banana and has a spare banana peel to like slip up a criminal yeah it's that kind of movie literally none of that happens there's no point to dedicating like a couple minute montage of this kid just scarfing down food and then immediately asking all right when do we eat 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 this one doesn't seem to know what to do with the things it's putting in front of us scenes will just start and end with nothing to like establish where we are or connected tissue like it's totally reasonable to have scenes that cut from one to the other to show that the two scenes are related or the you know that their plot are thematically coherent or whatever this doesn't always do that sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't yeah i think the editing towards the latter half of the film is much better than the first but the first half is atrocious they'll cut back and forth between two scenes for seemingly absolutely no reason mm-hmm. i think you came up with a theory that they were trying to show things in exact chronological order that is my only explanation for why someone would edit the film this way it makes me yearn for the narrative cohesion of suicide squad <sighs> right One other amazing thing. Surprisingly, Dick Tracy is the first film in our bracket to give us an example of unnecessary slow-mo. So there's this one point where they're investigating a crime scene and Dick Tracy finds an earring and it's slow motion as he's picking it up and then he pockets it. It happens to belong to Breathless and he'll confront her about it later and try and get a confession out of her to implicate Big Boy never actually happens but there's no reason to have that slow-mo shot it's the only shiny object on screen there's no way a the audience is going to miss that especially since you're then having dick tracy pocket it i'm guessing that there are some test audience who didn't realize what that was or why it mattered and they like slowed it down in post or something but i think the problem was they're not very remarkable earrings i mean sure like if you look at this earring at the crime scene and breathless wearing the same earring you're like hmm, i bet that's connected but i don't remember what it looked like beyond they were earrings this is the time to shell out for a prop go big or go home this is not a movie that has subtlety bright ruby red earrings yeah or like gold to go with her hair yeah something or maybe the same colors the coach she wears when she's the question i mean when she's the the blank <laughs> you know set up that speaking of the blank the voice they chose is so bad it's like if you ran over a frog and then asked it to voice act <laughs> pretty much thankfully there isn't too much of it but what there is like oh no also, as far as I know, there's not like a technology with that. The mask seems to be just a mask. So I guess Breathless Mahoney can just <laughs> do that. I mean, Breathless Mahoney can do a lot of things, apparently. Like, they do not scrimp on the fact that they have Madonna. And I think she has like four or five song numbers. I think it's closer to three or four. But it definitely feels like cross-promotion for Madonna. Which, I mean, early 90s, it probably is. Right. I get it. If you have a talented singer in your film, you know, you should use her. It'd be like if you cast Lady Gaga, but you had her as like a swamp witch with no lines and just never had her sing or something. Who would do that? (laughs) That season also had Kathy Bates in it. (laughs) And we talked a bit about how Dick Tracy is unlikable. It's partially because, I mean, he's played by uh, by Warren Beatty, who's also the director and writer, I believe. Warren Beatty's the director, 
producer and is the star of this film. Yeah. So this is definitely a passion project. This is definitely like, ah, oh, this is my power fantasy. And uh, his power fantasy is gross cop who all the ladies love and who talks in the theater. The special hell. A lot of this project feels like an ego trip for Warren Beatty. He gets to star as the main character who has not one but two young in love interests that are significantly younger than he is as an actor. Afterwards, attempted to make a sequel and got involved in a decade and a half long legal battle over who owns the rights to adaptations for Dick Tracy. That lawsuit wasn't finalized until 2013. Wow. Honestly, I'm glad it took that long because I would have not wanted another sequel for this. We kind of almost did. In 2008, there was a Dick Tracy television special where Warren Beatty dressed up as Dick Tracy to get interviewed by a film critic. Is Dick Tracy <laughs> Warren Beatty's persona? I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of what I see going on here feels incredibly masturbatory. Yeah. We've ragged on this film a lot. I will say the art direction is on point. Mm. They went for a very stylized city for this take place in. It has that kind of Tim Burton feel, but Tim Burton plus colors. It's somewhere between like Tim Burton and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. All these beautiful black cityscapes that are lit with all these pinks and blues and golds and purples and reds that like looks really cool. And all these sets that have that same kind of hyper-realized lighting, which constantly reminds you of this is meant to be a comic, so you shouldn't take it too seriously. All the characters wear very monochromatic outfits, a lot of uh, red, green, and yellow. There's a lot of odd-colored fedoras and trench coats, and it, it's very in line with the style of the comic. And all of it looks pretty good here. And even have some fun set design. I really liked the bit where the casino gets rapidly turned into just a normal, respectable establishment. There's a lot of fun with watching them turn the tables over and turn the walls backwards and stuff. Mm -hmm. Someone had fun building that set. If you turn the sound off and just watch the movie, you could have a good time. You could be writing, editing, and just have it on. And, you know. I don't think watching a film on mute is a uh, strong endorsement. It's not. <laughs> Honestly, I'd love a fandom of this. <laughs> that sounds like fun. That might make it watchable. Dick Tracy a bridge? But still with Madonna playing all of her roles. But Madonna now. <laughs> I think I have said my piece. Are we ready to move on to Dennis the Menace? Yeah. Okay, so Dennis the Menace is based on a comic, as we know, and it's weird. In mid-March of 1951, the Dennis Singularity exploded and we got two different newspaper strips starring someone named Dennis the Menace at the same time. Uh, the American one was started March 12th and the UK one started March 17th. This has caused a lot of confusion, and you will find them under different names depending on where you are. For all intents and purposes for this, Dennis the Menace is the U.S. version. Dennis and Nasher is the U.K. version. Dennis and Nasher is a bit more Calvin and Hobbesy. It's a little bit older, a little bit more complex. Occasionally there are more plots, like at one point Dennis and Nasher, his dog, fight an army of robots. Whereas the American Dennis the Menace is incredibly sweet and he causes minor wacky problems that aren't particularly interesting. Dear God, the comics are boring. It's like if you took the first panel of a Calvin and Hobbes comic and stretched it all the way out to a full Sunday length. Nothing happens. Yeah, Dennis the Menace is like the more edgy version of Family Circus. God, yeah. Also, uh, Zack Snyder's Family Circus win. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
And I mean, it's been around since the 50s. It has that kind of sweet, unthreatening Americana thing, but oh boy, is it not doing much for me as someone who grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes. I, I love Calvin and Hobbes. I have a bookshelf that is taller than me, and it is one-eighth full of Calvin and Hobbes books. As we were watching the film, I kind of made the realization that it was the closest we were ever going to get to a Calvin and Hobbes film, and that made me incredibly sad. Yeah. I respect Watterson's resistance to license out Calvin. I get it, but I would love to see some animated version of Calvin. Mm -hmm. And the film does a decent job of kind of translating that non-threatening menace to the screen. We'll get into it more in, in general, but it has that same kind of, oh, he's causing minor problems that are slightly inconvenient to the people around him, but not much more than that. Has the same kind of weird 50s gender politics with the character of Margaret, who's snooty girl next door. There's Dennis the Menace comic I found where the whole thing is just, she's walking towards Dennis and Joey who are hanging out and it's captioned, well, here comes a little Miss Rain Cloud. And that's it. That's the whole thing. That's barely a joke. That's a joke. And it's weird. There's this weird tension between the roots of the comic in 1950s and that sort of Americana aesthetic and that sort of ideal of home life. But this film takes place in at least what was then the modern day. Like it takes place in the early 90s. And it's definitely interacting with that. So Dennis the Menace had a pretty successful TV show version back in the 60s. And there, Mr. Wilson is younger. His mom is actually like a stay-at-home mom instead of having a job. And it, it seems like the characters have advanced in time, but Dennis hasn't. Much like the comic strip, honestly. Mr. Wilson is retired and his mom has a day job now. And it's interesting to see how the movie's interacting with this legacy thing and how it doesn't really fit with reality anymore. A lot of that plays out in, like, the gender politics and whatnot with Margaret and, to a certain extent, Mrs. Wilson as well as Dennis's mom, Alice. I'll touch more on Alice a little bit later. I will say, while this movie has pros and cons, I was feeling it with Martha Wilson, who's sweet and kind and feels like if you combine all the Golden Girls into a single Golden Girl... She's like Golden Girl Voltron. Yeah, and she's played by Joan Plowright, who we fell in love with in Dinosaur as Baleen. The worst of it is, you allowed an old fool like me to believe I was needed, that I still had a purpose. And do you know what? You were right. The old lesbian Brachiosaurus. And here she, she has several really heartfelt moments in the second act where she interacts with her feelings of sadness about never having a child and this kind of simmering frustration and loneliness and wanting to be a good mother but never knowing if she would have been. And it's really sad. And I, I was tearing up. And, and then you also have Mr. Wilson, who is doing a very poor job of navigating and helping her through that and is in general pretty much just being a grumpy curmudgeon. Once you get to the end and he's realized that he drove Dennis away and he feels really bad about it, he has this like pathos on his face and you know he actually goes looking for Dennis. And by looking for Dennis, I mean he sort of walks in the street and shouts, Dennis! Dennis! You know, shouts Dennis's name to a waterfall or whatever. <laughs> you know, they're not very good at finding him. Although, towards the end of the film, they talk about how they won't have to figure out daycare for Dennis anymore because Alice's workplace is starting a daycare program at work. And Mr. Wilson is like, don't be foolish. I mean, we're right next door. We can watch them. Then he immediately gets hit with a flaming marshmallow in the forehead and then cut to the post credit sequence of Dennis 
at the daycare at Alice's work. <laughs> so that whole after cornet sequence kind of undercuts a lot of Mr. Wilson's character growth. Mm-hmm. Also, the after credits scene is basically women who don't want kids are bad. They get their comeuppance by being mildly inconvenienced for a bit. There's this whole secondary plot of Alice and her job and the motherhood bias that she's getting there. And it makes sense for when this movie came out, women were going into the workforce in much greater degrees and we were starting to see a lot of these sort of issues come about. There's a point where she's in a meeting and she brings up, they're they're talking about a mall and toy stores and how the placement of the toy store will affect parents and how they'll go through the all and she's using her experiences in motherhood to give them more information and you know try and make a point and she is it, it's all disregarded as how is this useful to us could you spare us the family anecdotes please and then she is also berated by a co-worker for wanting to try and reschedule a business trip because her husband also has a business tri- trip at that same time his was scheduled first and there's not going to be anyone to look after dennis i don't have kids but uh... <laughs> I do have a life. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to be able to help you. Honestly, I wouldn't have any problems with these things appearing in the film and these issues and obstacles being overcome by Alice if they weren't delivered in the way they are here. Because the way they characterize all these issues that Alice is having as work is with another woman who doesn't have a child. And it's incredibly frustrating because statistically speaking, she is going to be much more sympathetic to Alice's needs and the issues that she's having at work because A, it's a form of sexism. B, there's a very strong chance that she may end up being a mother at some point or is thinking about becoming a mother and wants to have those sorts of protections in place for when she decides to do that. And in general, it's having this employment power structure centered on this woman when, especially at the time, that was not the case. It would have been an old boys club and men would be much more, much more likely to question why she needs all this special consideration as a working mother and why she can't get over it and why she can't just put her job before her kid. And I think if they would have had a male antagonist for Alice at work, I wouldn't have had a problem. But here it's super shitty. This film wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to talk about the societal problem, but point to this shrew of a woman as opposed to the the real culprit of creating these issues and sustaining the inherent power imbalance that women have in business. Yeah, agreed. To give you a sort of mental image, imagine if at the end of Legally Blonde, Vivian had decided that, no, the patriarchy is fine, I like it. Seriously disturbed. That was the arc. And that was it. You also get Margaret, who she's this snooty kid who I don't know why she hangs out with these guys when they're standard boys, I guess. When you think of young rapscallions, think of Dennis and Joey. They're Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They sure are. And so it seemed like just kind of a way to have young characters say things that are funny to older audiences because they're like, oh, oh, these kids and their understandings of gender things. It's weird and hashtag not great. That said, you do have Polly and Mickey. (laughs) Yeah, moving on to less problematic gender stuff, more just funny. At one point, they're actually able to get a babysitter for Dennis that's not the Wilsons. And it's this girl named Polly who is... 
portrayed by Natasha Leon, who, if you've ever watched Orange is the New Black, it's the actress who portrays Nikki. Straight girls. They'll fuck you up every time. And even in this movie, she talks about how she heard from her girlfriend that you need to bring a helmet if you're babysitting Dennis. And we assume the filmmakers meant it as, like, my friend who was a girl. But who boy... She does admittedly like have a boyfriend in the film who she brings over to Mac on. If you and if you ever wanted to see Nikki from Orange is the New Black and Buzz from Home Alone macking on each other, here's the movie for you. It's less macking and more of just dragging their arms and hands across each other <laughs> while they press their faces together. Yeah. It's like the making out from a low low. <laughs> where it's just Two people standing up and giving each other back rubs at the same time. None of the scenes are actually funny, but in a meta context, they're hilarious. Buzz's character is very clearly high when he's babysitting Dennis. You can tell as an adult, and it adds a layer of adult humor. There's a decent amount of of adult humor in this, actually. A lot of things I'm like, ooh, wow, this is raunchy for a kid's film. (laughs) I think a lot of that comes from the fact that this film is blatantly copying the same mold as the Home Alone films. Oh, yeah. We mentioned that Mickey has the same actor as Buzz from those movies. John Hughes is a producer on this as well as the Home Alone films. And the whole wacky slapstick shenanigans and is right out of the same playbook. This film came out just a year after Home Alone 2 did. And who boy does it show. Yeah. And I think that's really the only reason there's the introduction of this character, Switchblade Sam. And Switchblade Sam is Christopher Lloyd after having been smacked in the face by the alleyways of New York for about two weeks. Take Christopher Lloyd, now have him cosplay as Filch from the Harry Potter series. Oh, wow, nice. And then roll him around in sewage for a few minutes. That's Switchblade Sam. And then give him a cigarette. He smokes a lot in this kid's movie. It was the 90s. And he spends most of the movie just wandering around looking predatorially at children and, oh boy, don't like that. Nope, nope, nope. And honestly, his only relevance to the plot is that hostage situation with Dennis and getting multiple concussions and then Dennis turning him into the police. He's not really relevant to anyone's arcs. He's just there as a punching bag. Well, he is the instigation for Dennis telling Mr. Wilson about the robbery, which interrupts his garden party. However, you think that Dennis the Menace could probably cause problems on his own. He doesn't need outside help. Why would you have Dennis the Menace not be a menace? But have the Menace be Christopher Lloyd as the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, basically. I think Switchblade Sam kind of seals this as a much weaker copy of a known franchise. That's the only reason to have him in there is to act as an analog to the Wet Bandits. It's also got some uncomfortable stuff with the sanitized image of the American suburbs and this homeless drifter who's come in to disrupt it. And it's not like the most awful thing ever. We've seen worse things on this bracket, but it still feels weird and not great in ways that I can't fully articulate. No, like, it definitely feels weird. There's even one point where the sheriff of the town effectively tells him to just get out. And makes it very clear that if he doesn't, there will be consequences. In the film's case, the consequences happen to be getting beat up by a child. (laughs) An unusual justice system. (laughs) But at the time, it definitely feels like, oh, it's still a cop threatening violence on a homeless person. 
And that implies to me that this town in the exact middle of America doesn't have any kind of protections or assistance programs for people who clearly need it. Looking at this guy, I'm like, wow, this guy definitely needs some sort of work to get out of the tyranny of the moment that he's clearly in. <laughs> Admittedly, he seems to be kind of not a great person he does try to kidnap a child which is generally seen as a social faux pas but telling him to go on and get isn't going to help anything <laughs> just a few other things with dennis the mouse we've kind of talked a little bit about that weirdness between the comic strips origin in 1951 and this contemporary film from 1993 there's also this scene where mr wilson is talking to dennis's dad about discipline and making dennis understand that he can't just break into mr wilson's home and bother him while he's trying to sleep things like that and mr mitchell at one point is like i'll talk to him again and then mr wilson responds maybe it isn't talk that he needs you see when my old man had something important to tell me he told me with his belt Oops. <laughs> which back in the 90s that was not as, as much of a social faux pas as it definitely is now mm. i think the tipping point was reached just a few years ago on that we're we're slowly getting into don't hit your kids yes so like, that was just another weird thing going on although thankfully mr mitchell is like that's not how i deal with my son mr wilson Good. That could have gone much worse. You're not wrong, but at the same time, his son does tend to cause problems, so you could make the argument that the film is suggesting that that should have happened. I'm not saying it definitely was, I'm saying that that's a possible reading for that. I will admit that it's a possible reading. I don't think it's a very strong one, considering the position that Mr. Wilson is in. By the end of the film, is he's definitely in the wrong. Mm, sure. I will admit that throughout the film, at least me as an adult, was feeling more for Mr. Wilson than I was for Dennis most of the time. Yeah, when I spent most of the film wondering how Dennis was going to mess up the garden party and being like, wow, I'm an old, aren't I? <laughs> um, but, I mean, I get it. Mr. Wilson has been working on this for 40 years or whatever, and it is admittedly very sad. Another weird thing, there's an awful lot of scenes with Dennis in the bath. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing the culture has just sort of shifted a bit with the way we think about children and innocence and clothes and stuff, but it's still weird. We have been relatively negative. The music in it is pretty good. The shots are often quite nice. There's a decent amount of physical slapstick that works. Home Alone still plays. This is effectively that. Yeah. I think it's about that time to render our final decision. I think, as you may well have guessed, Dennis the Menace is moving on. If you would have told me that Dennis the Menace would be moving on this week before I watched Dick Tracy, I would have laughed in your face. I do not remember this movie fondly. I realized this watch through that's mostly because Switchblade Sam is there, and there, there's just no reason for him to be there, other than this is a cash grab trying to copy Home Alone. But no, Dick Tracy is really that bad. The movie is almost incomprehensible. Yeah, you were hyping up Dennis and Menace as being like really awful, but I found myself kind of liking it. I mean, it has vast gaping flaws, maybe it's because we watched it right after Dick Tracy, but I was drawn in by these characters and the plot was compelling enough that I cared. Well, Dennis the Menace seems to be moving on to prank Mr. Wilson another day. And Dick Tracy has to settle down uh, with an office job. What do we have coming up next week? Gods. Cowboys versus Aliens versus Annie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. I've been excited for that episode since I seeded the bracket. That's the kind of bonkers mashup that I wanted to do. 
It couldn't have happened to two better films. <laughs> right. Cowboy vs. Alien vs. Annie is next week. Please tune in. It's going to be a trip. If you want to make sure to catch it as soon as it goes live, you can make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, Spotify, whatever suits your needs. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.